Thanks, Brendan, for such a such a warm welcome. It's just such a such a privilege to be with with you this morning. Um, as Brendan mentioned just then, we are uh, relatively new to the church, um, and we just got back from the UK just over a year ago. Um, and since that time, we've really had the privilege and the real blessing of getting to know so many of you. And the way that you've w- welcomed us in, into your church family has just been so um, so impactful for our lives. Um, on top of that, being part of uh, gospel community, Ollie and Nellie's gospel community has just been so uh, foundational for us as a family. And so we just thank you for that as well. And as mentioned, as mentioned by Brendan also, Academy has just been just so formative, uh, not just for myself, but for Ivy and myself this this year. So just a quick plug, if you do know anyone who is exploring pastoral ministry or anyone who's interested in church planning, I couldn't more highly recommend the academy uh, to to you all. Uh, for those of you who are taking notes this morning, and I know there's quite a few note takers in our midst, the title of today's message is Spiritual Sight. Spiritual Sights. And we're going to be continuing on in our journey through the Gospel of Luke, which has been fantastic. We're going to be kicking off from Luke chapter 18, starting from verse 31. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Please have your Bibles open. We're going to be flicking back and forth quite often, or you can follow along on the screen as well. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. How about we pray? Uh, Heavenly Father and gracious God, we just come before you this morning acknowledging that we would see nothing if you don't open our eyes. We can't see and understand and grasp the truth of the passage that we've just read without your Holy Spirit working within our hearts. And so, Father, we just ask that you illuminate our hearts, that you give us insight into the truths of this passage. And not just insight, Lord, we pray that you help us apply this in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, um, for a while, I had convinced myself that that our family 
was special. Our family was special because as parents, we had somehow managed to escape the notoriously common question of, are we there yet? Sounding repetitively from the back of our car. You know, every time that we wanted to escape the business of life in London, we'll take a day trip out into the English countryside. And Nathan would just contentedly just stare out the window. He would just bounce along to children's songs. He would sometimes go for a bit of a snooze. No questions asked. No whining. No tears. We had a special family. (laughs) But this special arrangement came crashing down shortly after arriving back in Sydney. During the last summer holidays, we did a few trips up to the central coast, and that's, that's when it all changed. Suddenly, there was this vocal dissatisfaction with our music choices, where even scrambling to put on the Fireman Sam theme song was unable to soothe the trauma of having to listen to Daddy's playlist for a little while. Suddenly, the mesmerizing view out the window became adamantly boring. And suddenly, the infamous question of, are we there yet, begun to be asked with increasing urgency from the back seat. But in one sense, you can't really blame the children, can you? You tell them that we're headed to some awesome place like the beach or the reptile park. But before we get there, we're going to strap you into a seat for one or two hours where the only parentally approved movements are slight adjustments to your head, arms and legs, but definitely no kicking daddy's seat and no prodding your sister. Please quietly and patiently wait for the exciting place we're taking you to. You know, if anything, I'm just like my children too. The mixture of knowing something big is coming, yet having to wait it's difficult, isn't it? You know, one particular, particularly difficult waiting experience for me is this one. We've just all ordered our favorite meals at our favorite restaurant. But all good because, you know, we're all waiting together. Then the kids' meals arrive on the table. Mmm, looks good. Then Ivy's meal arrives on the table. Now, I don't want everyone's meal going cold. So let's close our eyes. Let's give thanks for the food. I open my eyes. Still no meal. I nervously readjust the knife and fork at the table. Oh, I see the kitchen doors open. This must be it. The waiters, he's heading towards us. Oh no, he veers right to another table. Oh no, I start calculating in my mind. Is it too early to mention maybe they've forgotten my meal? Then Ivy catches me in the telltale sign that the wait has been excruciating. She notices that I'm frequently having to swallow my own saliva because I'm hungrily salivating so much. (laughs) Friends, I'm sure you would all agree that waiting is not the easiest thing to do. And this was no different for Jesus' disciples. You see, all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Dr. Luke, in his style, in his meticulous style, details a record of something that is very important. This is what he writes in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. 
when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, this marks the very moment that Jesus resolutely sets out towards Jerusalem. So pretty much everything from chapter 9, verse 51, up to and including the passage that we're looking at today, details the journey of Jesus traveling south from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And the location where we find ourselves in, in today's passage, is, is, is in the vicinity of a town called Jericho. Now, Jericho is about 25 kilometers from Jerusalem. 25 kilometers is about the distance between here and Sydney CBD. In other words, they're on the home stretch now. They're approaching Jerusalem. And there's an ever-growing sense amongst the disciples, are we there yet? Unfortunately, apart from the fact that they knew that they were getting close to Jerusalem, the disciples didn't seem to understand much else. You see, if you reread some of the passages that cover this journey, there are subtle hints that the disciples have a real confusion about what's going to happen at Jerusalem. You see, they probably thought it was more like a, like a victory march of a triumphant king going to be crowned which explains why they're so keen to get to Jerusalem. I just want you to imagine for a second the faces of the disciples as Jesus tells them what's going to actually happen at Jerusalem. So Jesus firstly says to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. To which you can imagine all the disciples, you know, nodding their heads excitedly. Then Jesus says, And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The disciples kind of still nodding their head. Then Jesus drops verse 32. Look at verse 32 with me on them. He says, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. At which point you could imagine just the awkward silence that descended upon the disciples. They're just looking at one another, just just confused. Now, what I really want to draw out here is the extreme contrast that is painted by Luke. On the one hand, you have such definitive and clear statements spoken by Jesus about what's going to happen to him at Jerusalem. Yet, on the other hand, you have the utter lack of understanding of the disciples. I mean, to begin with, it's worth remembering that up to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has already alluded to what will happen in Jerusalem about six times. So what we see here today is actually the seventh record of Jesus telling his disciples what's going to happen at Jerusalem. On top of that, Jesus even gives his description, begins his description with uh, giving them some context, some historical prophetic context. Look at verse 31 with me. He says that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In other words, what Jesus tells them will happen in Jerusalem. It's not going to be some isolated event, void of any greater historical context. He's basically giving them the nudge. He's saying, do you guys remember those prophetic passages? Passages like Psalm 22, which talks about the Christ being mocked, which talks about the Christ having his garments divided up, which talks about the Christ having his hands and his feet being pierced. Or we all know Isaiah 53, right, where it talks about a man of sorrows. 
It talks about him being despised and rejected by men. One who would carry our griefs. One who would carry our sorrows and be afflicted. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Chastised so we may have peace. Wounded so that we may be healed. You see, Jesus is deliberately pointing back to the scriptures to give them the grand redemptive context of what's going to reach its climax in Jerusalem. He's bringing to bear the full prophetic weight of what will shortly happen. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. Look at verse 32 and verse 33 to actually give a description of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And, you know, it's not like Jesus is talking to them in parables or in riddles. Jesus explains plainly to them in the clearest possible terms. Not only that, Jesus gives them the most comprehensive description of what he will have to suffer, listing out in more detail than he has ever detailed before in his ministry about what he's going to go through. And even on top of that, Jesus speaks that he speaks in the most definitive of terms, doesn't he? He doesn't say, probably this is going to happen, or maybe this is going to happen. No, Jesus clearly, comprehensively, and definitively tells his disciples that he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be shamefully treated. They will flog him. They will kill him. But on the third day, he will rise. And yet, despite all of this, in complete contrast to the clarity and the certainty of Jesus' words, we have the disciples who have no clue as to the reality of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. You know, I'm not sure that Luke could have put it in more stronger terms. Look at verse 34 with me. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. I mean, just imagine rocking up to a parent-teacher interview and the teacher says something like that about your child. He, he understood none of what I taught. It was, it was hidden from him. And he not grasped what I said. I mean, if I heard that about my child, it would be like getting punched three times in the stomach. Because the same negative thing was said three times in three different ways in one single statement. What an indictment on the disciples' lack of understanding. What an indictment on the disciples' blindness. Friends, this was not a case of a lack of revelation. This was a case of a lack of comprehension. The disciples couldn't grasp what was going to happen at Jerusalem, and therefore there was no way they could understand why it was going to happen. They understood not the activity that would occur at Jerusalem, and therefore they could not understand the gravity of what was going to occur at Jerusalem. Simply put, the disciples were blind to the reality of why Jesus was going to Jerusalem. If you're taking notes this morning, the main point of all that I've said is simply this. Spiritual sight sees why Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. Let me say that again. Spiritual sight sees why Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. But simply put, the disciples did not have this spiritual sight. Or as Luke puts it, it was just hidden from them. 
You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not sure whether you're a Christian. But you think that being part of a church community is a great thing. And amen to that. And you think that there is some real value in Jesus' teaching and his ethics. And amen to that too. But you know, all this talk about Jesus dying in our place, to take upon himself the divine punishment for our sins, and then, and then rising again on the third day, you're just, you're just not too sure about all of that. You're not sure why it's emphasized so much here at Sovereign Grace. It's just, it's just lost upon you. To you, Jesus, he's a good man. He was a good teacher. So you're happy to learn from him, but you really struggle to lean upon him. You're happy to be taught by him, but you don't see why your sin must be atoned for by him. You do sense that there is a greater vision of Jesus that is, that can be had, but it just seems, it seems clouded from your eyes. It seems obscured from your view. It's like you sense the warmth of the sun, but its light remains eclipsed from your eyes. What are you going to do? What are you to do? Well, I trust that as we move on to the next part of our passage from verses 35 to verse 40, that it will give you much encouragement of how to respond if you are in that situation. How about we look at that part? Verse 35 to verse 40. So as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now, again, I want to draw your attention to another set of contrasts that Luke so beautifully paints for us. So on the one hand, you've got the crowd, right? And the disciples. And they're on the move. They are getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Then on the other hand, you've got the blind man. And he definitely ain't on the move. In fact, he's just sitting by the roadside. You can probably imagine that every day he, he gropes around for his cloak and then he, he, he shuffles to the same dusty spot. He sits himself, sits himself down and then he throws out his arms, begging so that he can scrape by just enough to do exactly the same thing tomorrow. To put it quite honestly, he's never been on the move. He's stuck. He's stuck. The crowd, the disciples, they're on the move. The blind beggar, stuck. But having a heightened sense of hearing, the blind man notices that there is something different today. He hears a crowd going by, and in his lifetime, he, he would have heard a thousand crowds pass him by. But he senses there is something different today. And so he inquires. 
And the reply that he gets back from the crowd is incredibly matter-of-fact. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This reply gives the blind man the name of the man passing by, Jesus, where he grew up, Nazareth, and an extremely impotent description of what he's doing. He's passing by. But the blind man's response is absolutely incredible. With eyes of faith, the blind man sees beyond the dull description of Jesus. With his spiritual eyes, he is not just Jesus of Nazareth. He is Jesus, son of David. You know, this is the first time in all of Luke's gospel where the term son of David is used. It is a term undoubtedly loaded with messianic connotations. To call Jesus the son of David is to see him as Jesus, the promised king, the Messiah, the saviour. To see him as restorer and redeemer. And the irony is that it is a blind man who sees this with such clarity. Therefore, for this blind man, there is no way, there is no way that Jesus is just passing him by. A million and one people have passed by this blind man during his lifetime, but his faith dares not let Jesus just pass him by. His faith cannot fathom that the merciful Messiah passes him by without firsthand experiencing the Messiah's mercy. So he shouts out, have mercy on me. But the crowd, the crowd's having none of it. Especially the ones who are at the front of the crowd. Ironically, the ones who are most zealously following after Jesus' lead. I mean, look at the vast difference of expectation between those at the front of the crowd and the blind man. To those at the front of the crowd, of which probably included the are we there yet disciples, they perceived that the son of David had no time for this blind man. He was just like some distraction in the glorious march of the king towards Jerusalem. But for the blind man, so clear was his vision of the son of David that he couldn't imagine Jesus not stopping and showing him mercy. And so unfazed by the huge social pressure from the crowd for him to quiet down, he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And friends, this this is the edge of your seat part of the story. This is the edge of your seat part of the story. Two very different perceptions of who the son of David is. Two very different perceptions of how the Messiah should respond. Who is it that actually sees Jesus correctly? And look with me to verse 40. And Jesus stopped. Oh, those three marvelous words with which Luke sets the record straight as to who actually has a correct vision of the Messiah. And Jesus stopped. Jesus neither passes by this blind man, nor does he agree that the blind man should be silent. 
A million people have passed by this blind man during his lifetime, begging, but the Son of God stops. And not only does he stop, in the total opposite of the, of the crowd's rebuke for the blind man to be silent, Jesus, Jesus invites him to speak. Jesus gives him a voice. Oh, Jesus, so gentle and tender and so unlike the stereotypical king who would more likely ask, what can you do for me? Jesus mercifully asks him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? To which the blind man replies, Lord, let me recover my sight. I love what um, James Edwards, a, a Bible commentator, writes about the blind man's request. It should be on the screen. He asks, not for wealth, power, success or greatness, not for the extraordinary, but for the ordinary, for the restoration of the created order, which is the objective of all redemption. Do you see what this shows? It shows that the blind man saw with such great clarity the redemptive, restorative hearts of Jesus. He saw that Jesus was the redeemer, the restorer, the one who is going to right all wrongs, the one who is making all things new. And so, friends, if my first main point was that spiritual sight sees why Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, then my main point of all that I've said in the second point is that spiritual sight sees how Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. Spiritual sight sees how Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. It sees the manner in which he traveled to Jerusalem. You see, the great theme of mercy defined not just Jesus' ministry when he sacrificed himself in our place upon the cross, but this theme of redemptive, restorative mercy was just so evident in Jesus' ministry because it is woven into the heart of Jesus. And it was the fact that the blind man saw the tender, merciful heart of Jesus that it gave him the confidence to cry out to him. And so likewise for us all this morning, if you acknowledge that your vision of Jesus is obscured, if you know that you are stuck, spiritually stuck, struggling to see Jesus for all he truly is, then this account should give you confidence in what the blind man saw is true. It should give you confidence that Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, son of David, the Messiah, the Redeemer. It should give you confidence that the crowd's perception was utterly wrong but that Jesus indeed does have time for people like us. It should give you confidence that his tender, that he is tender in his mercy and that he will not just pass you by today, but that Jesus will indeed stop. It should give you confidence that Jesus' heart is still inclined towards mercy. It should give you confidence that Jesus is eager to redeem and to restore. 
And so if this is you this morning and you are tired of sitting in spiritual darkness and you sense that there is something different today, if you feel his warmth but you long to see his light, cry out to him. Cry out to the son of David. Cry out for he'll have mercy on you. Let not the merciful Messiah pass you by today without experiencing firsthand the Messiah's mercy this morning. Cry out to him and ask that your spiritual sight be restored. Now for the rest of us here today, for those for those of us who feel that we do have a clear vision by God's grace of why Jesus went to Jerusalem, let me invite you to take a fresh look of how Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. Let us assess how, whether our vision of why Jesus traveled to Jerusalem is consistent with our vision of how Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. I mean, is it possible, brothers and sisters, that we are prone to race through life with this perpetual, are we there yet, mentality? Consider this fact for a moment. If there is one person in all of humanity, throughout all of history, who could legitimately have said to the blind man, Hey there, look, I'm a little bit too busy at the moment saving the world. But if you could leave a message with my disciples, they'll get back to you at the earliest convenience. That person would be Jesus. But he didn't do that. You see, most of us would describe ourselves as people who are on the move, right? We're busy folks, generally as people who are heading towards somewhere, whether that's heading towards the next stage of our education or heading towards the next stage uh, of our career or heading towards a larger family or heading towards our next ministry aspirations or heading towards retirement. And there's nothing inherently wrong with being on the move. I mean, Jesus resolutely set out towards Jerusalem. But it's also worth stopping for a moment to assess whether in all our going and doing and moving. Are we ever so captivated by the heart, the merciful heart of Jesus, that we are like him in his stopping? I mean, just scan through all the Gospels and you'll see how much of Jesus' ministry is filled with what we would call distractions. I mean, is it possible at times that we are blinded like the disciples by our personal agendas blitzing past the very people whom God brings into our lives. You know, I can't recall the, the countless number of times that I've, I've prayed and I've asked, I've asked God for more opportunities to speak to people about Jesus. But you know what? I've come to slowly realize that it isn't often due to a lack of opportunities in my life, but a lack of a willingness in my heart to slow down to actually take these opportunities. And of course, I'm, I'm sure none of us will be as audacious as the crowd in telling the blind man to be silent. But how many opportunities for the gospel have been squandered? How many conversations cut short? How many potential relationships hollowed out? 
by the frantic pace in which we move through our lives. You know, I know what I've said may be confronting and probably even offensive to us as a, as a busy, busy culture. But my desire is not to sink our hearts into a sea of guilt. It, it really isn't. Instead, look at, look at verse 40 with me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. You know, the very second that Jesus stopped, I bet you many in the crowd would, would have immediately been convicted of their callous indifference towards the blind man. And yet Jesus, oh, Jesus is amazing. Jesus, with redemption ever on his heart, uses that moment as a redemptive teaching opportunity. Notice what he does. He doesn't directly command that the blind man come to him, but instead he commands that the blind man be brought to him. Can you see what Jesus has done? He now uses the agency of the crowd to guide and to lead and to encourage and to bring the blind man to himself. And the same rings true for us today. Yes, we may have hurried past many people in our lives, people that God has placed in our lives. Yes, we may have been indifferent and even dismissive of those people. But even in the midst of such failures, take heart, brothers and sisters, for God gives us fresh opportunities to see his heart of mercy and renews us again to the privilege of being his hands and his feet being the very agents of his great mercy. O oh, church, may it be that in our journeys, our sojournings, our pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem, that we would have such a heart of mercy like our Savior, that we too would be eager to stop, to invite, to listen to, to care for, to give a voice to, and to minister to those whom God brings across our path. Finally, this brings us to the wonderful conclusion of this account. Read with me from verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. So in affirmation of what the blind man did, that the blind man had indeed come to exactly the right person with exactly the right request, Jesus simply but powerfully replies to the blind man, recover your sight. He then goes on to explain, your faith has made you well. Now we all know that the blind man's faith was not in and of itself the cure but faith was the means by which he saw the one who could cure. You know, the Greek phrase for uh, made you well can also be translated as saved you. So in other words, Jesus said, your faith has saved you. In other words, Jesus was saying that the blind man's faith is the very same kind of faith necessary for salvation. It's the faith that saw that Jesus was willing and able to restore and to redeem. And so wondrously, at the end of this, we see that immediately he recovered his sight. 
Let me, all, let me ask you all something. Can you see the full stop after the phrase, and immediately he recovered his sight? Do you see that the start of chapter 19 begins straight after this phrase? No, my friends. Because the recovery of sight, the restoration of vision, is not the apex of the blind man's experience. If anything, it's just the beginning. I mean, just imagine with me this blind man's experience. Let me invite you just to close your eyes for a moment and put yourself into the blind man's shoes. Day after day, year after year of nothing but just darkness. Not a single photon of light has ever been properly processed by his eyes. But imagine the moment that Jesus restores his sight. Immediately and abundantly, light and all manner of colors flood into the blind man's eyes. But even more than this, the first thing that he sees is Jesus' face. He stares into the very face of his creator and redeemer, beholding the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, looking straight at him who is the light of the world. And as this glorious vision of Jesus flows into his eyes, spontaneously praise and honor and glory flows to God. And like so many of God's redemptive works, this wasn't just a a moment of personal devotion between him and Jesus. No, it couldn't be contained in that. But it was a time of overflow, a time of communal celebration. For all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So what then does the blind man do with his restored vision? Does he rush off to see the great Mediterranean Sea at Caesarea? Or does he go book a trip to see the snow-capped peaks of Mount Hermon? Or does he travel south to see the vast desert plains of the Negev? No. What can all the sights of creation possibly offer him after he has seen his maker? He does what can only be done after seeing the face of his saviour. He follows him. He follows him. 17 times Luke uses the term follow in this gospel. And it doesn't just mean physically following. But more often than not, it refers to discipleship. A lifelong, wholehearted trust in and commitment to Jesus. And so it is that if my first two points was that spiritual sight sees why Jesus traveled to Jerusalem and spiritual sight sees how Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, a good way to sum up all that I've just said in my final point is that spiritual sight is for the very purpose of following after Jesus. In other words, the very reason for spiritual sight is so that we can follow after Jesus. You see, friends, meeting And seeing Jesus was not the jolly ending of this blind man's story. It was the glorious beginning of his new story. 
And is it not the same for us? Oh, brothers and sisters, can you see the parallels between our life and the blind man's story? Were we not sitting by the roadside begging and desperate, going nowhere spiritually, stuck, morally bankrupt and trapped in utter darkness? But by God's good providence, he brought a crowd of people into our lives from whom we heard sound bites here and there about Jesus. Our interest was piqued. We inquired more. Then we cried out to him. And then we too experienced those three marvelous words. And Jesus stopped. He stopped and he gave us spiritual eyes to truly see him. You know, our souls were without form and void and covered in darkness. But in his mercy to us, he declared into our lives, let there be light. And we were made a new creation. Yes, brothers and sisters, we too once, look at the verbs, sat and begged and heard and inquired, and cried out, and cried out again, and we recovered our sight, but the verbs don't stop there. We are now to follow and glorify. I mean, what does all the world have to offer us? Who else are we to follow when we are seeing our Savior with eyes of faith? So let me ask you, how vivid is your vision of Jesus this morning? Does it blaze with the same clarity as when you first saw him? Has the outline of his lovely character waxed clearer? Have his commandments tasted ever sweeter? Has your perception of your own sin ever grown viler? Have the roots of obedience to him pressed down deeper? Does praise and glory of God in your life flow fuller? Has your testimony of him been shared wider? I guess what I want us all to consider this morning is whether our following after Jesus is commensurate with our seeing. Is our following after Jesus commensurate with our seeing? Oh, friends, I know I've said quite a bit today, but as I close and invite the, the worship team back up, I just want to say that there, if there's one thing that I long for you all to remember, it's simply this. Spiritual sight sees Jesus for who he truly is and cannot help but follow after him. Spiritual sight sees Jesus for who he truly is and cannot help follow after him. Spiritual sight sees why Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. It sees that all that happened to Jerusalem was part of God's redemptive plan. It sees the sufferings of Jesus and says, this is because of my great sin and his great mercy. It sees the resurrection of Jesus and says, this is what awaits me. Spiritual sight sees how Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. It sees that the theme of mercy marked all of Jesus' ministry. It sees God's heart of mercy towards us in Jesus and is compelled to do likewise. And lastly, spiritual sight 
It's for the purpose of following after Jesus. For there is no greater beauty to behold. There is no greater feast for our spiritual eyes than the person of Jesus. And therefore, it fixes its gaze upon him in wholehearted discipleship. You know, we have very few miracles where where the person that Jesus healed is actually named. If you flick across to um, the Gospel of Mark, we're actually told the, the name of the blind man that Jesus healed. His name was Bartimaeus. Now, some scholars suggest that it was appropriate for Mark to mention Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus by name because he actually did follow Jesus to Jerusalem. And then he went on to be a, a known leader at the church in Jerusalem. If this is so, not only would Bartimaeus have wondrously seen Jesus' face the moment that he was healed, but he would also have seen Jesus delivered over to the Romans. He would have seen Jesus mocked. He would have seen Jesus shamefully treated. He would have seen Jesus spat upon and flogged. He would have seen the nails that were driven into Jesus' hands and feet. He would have seen the outstretched arms of mercy of his Savior upon that cross. He would have seen the immeasurable cost of Jesus that he paid to restore us unto God. And in a grand and powerful display that mercy triumphs over judgment, he would have seen the risen Lord Jesus. And you know what? All that he saw in that short space of time in his life would have more than abundantly made up for a lifetime of seeing nothing. And so it is too with us brothers and sisters that by the word of God given to us by God by his, in his grace and his illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we too have seen with spiritual sight, all that Bartimaeus saw. Let us therefore live lives in both our going and our stopping, befitting of all that we've seen. Amen.